Greetings of the day, everyone. I am privileged to welcome you all into the third edition of Orange City Literature Festival, organized by SGR Knowledge Foundation in association with GH Raisoni University, powered by Raisoni Group of Institutions. I am Mula Bangale, delighted to be your anchor for today's session, The Story of the Six, by Mr. Sarpreet Singh in conversation with Sony Padma. Mr. Sarpreet Singh is a writer, podcaster, and commentator. He is also the author of the critically acclaimed Night of the Restless Spirits and the best-selling The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia and the writer-narrator of The Story of the Six podcast, which has listeners in over 90 countries. It's an honor to have you with us, Mr. Sarbeet Singh. And this event gets more delightful as we have Ms. Sony Varga, who will be in conversation with him as a model. Ms. Sony Varma is an assistant professor in the Department of English at SRM University, Andhra Pradesh, India. She was joint director at Maritime History Society, a think tank in Mumbai researching maritime history in interdisciplinary facets and run by Western Naval Command, India. She has taught courses in literature studies, advertising, and the mass media in Mumbai. An industry experience covers work with different Indian brands across industries on their digital marketing strategy. Her academic research and publications include philosophy of language, city writing, South Asian studies, and translation. Her public writing has appeared in national and international publications, including Asian Review of Books, South China Morning Post, Scroll, and Jenkins Herald. I once again welcome you, ma'am, and I welcome you, sir. Now, thank you. Audience, you are about to experience a conversation between two very dynamic individuals. So, without skipping a moment, I humbly invite Ms. Sony Padma to lead the event. Please, ma'am. Thank you, Purva. Hello, namaste, and good evening to one and all. I'm Sony Vadva, and thank you, Purva, for the introduction. I've been given the honor of interacting with an author I discovered recently, and I've come to adore. As Purva mentioned, uh, Mr. Sarpreet Singh is a writer, podcaster, commentator. She spoke about, uh, you know, two of his books and the podcast, so I would not repeat that. I'm more interested in things around uh, that, uh, around these things that she spoke about. Uh, Mr. Singh's uh, Kultar's Mime is an immersive theatrical experience that was staged 90 times in six countries. And, you know, it gets really, really huge because this has been performed at the British Parliament, the Scottish Parliament, the Parliament of the World's Religions and universities such as Harvard, Columbia, Stanford, UC Berkeley, University of Chicago. Uh, what is even more interesting is that he has also served as the Sikh spiritual advisor at the Center for Spirituality Dialogue and Service at Northeastern University and arranged multiple events at the university, including plays, musical performances and events to mark major Sikh festivals to serve the student community. His, university, his participation in the university's panels on diversity and spiritual retreats makes him an ideal candidate to write about spirituality and matters related to faith. Today, as we speak specifically about his podcast turned book, The Story of the Sikhs, this context of his larger engagement with faith cannot be emphasized enough. The book is beautiful for the diligence, the love that you have put in it, sir, to give the shape of narrative to faith. 
And as I take the privilege of interacting with you before we open this up to the audience, sir, I would like you to talk about the storytelling. You see, most of our discussions of religious icons, religious figures, religious stories are from historical periods far removed from our own. So when they so you know they come with a lot of miracles and supernatural elements, stuff like you know boons and curses. To write the story of a faith in contemporary times is a seriously challenging task. And well, here we have your book, the story of the Sikh, the Sikhs, very moving, minus the incredulous stuff. Would love to know what made you think of it as a story. Well, first of all, thank you for that very, very generous introduction. I really do appreciate it. Uh, so the story of the six is a very personal work. Uh, and I guess the best way for me to answer your question is to maybe provide a little bit of context. So I grew up in India, uh, in Sikkim, Gangtok, uh, as far removed from Punjabi culture and Sikh culture as one can possibly be. Uh, and, you know, I was a fairly typical young man growing up, uh, you know, attending quote unquote public schools, uh, very much focused on, you know, getting through school, getting to college. Uh, my faith was, uh, I think the best way to describe it, uh, was a tenuously burdensome appendage is how I can best describe it. Uh, you know, even though I grew up in a very traditional Sikh household, uh, I had no interest in my faith at all. And the only reason why I even kept my physical identity was that I came from a very conservative family. And from past history, I knew that my abandoning the trappings of my faith, which were just about the only thing that I carried around, would cause a lot of trauma. So, you know, that was my, uh, that was my 24-year-old self when I left India to go to graduate school in the US. And there, quite serendipitously, you know, through a series of meetings with uh, six that I found to be very, very inspiring, I was motivated to start learning about the Sikh faith. Uh, now, having grown up in Sikkim, I didn't uh, read Gurmukhi. So the only thing I could access were works written in English. And the first thing that I stumbled upon on the dusty shelves of my university library, and this was not a, you know, I wasn't in a humanities program, I was in a computer science program, but oddly enough, my library had a copy of J.D. Cunningham's History of the Six, which was one of the first works written, first works of history, Sikh history written in English. I found it absolutely fascinating. And uh, what really sort of, for the very first time in my life, I got an understanding of the underpinnings of my identity. In particular, I got a sense of the travails and tribulations of the Sikh gurus, of the Sikhs who followed them, particularly in the, in the very turbulent 18th century, and thus developed a bit of an appreciation for what my identity really meant. That was the start of my journey that led me to embrace other works written in English, you know, such as Max Arthur McAuliffe's uh, tome, The Sikh Religion, Sadar Krishwan Singh's two-volume Sikh history, which, you know, 60, 70 years later, you know, still remains a wonderful book on the subject. 
And then as my journey progressed, uh, you know, I started to, I taught myself Gurmukhi and I started reading Punjabi writers, most notably Pai Veer Singh, whose mystical writings on Sikhism are just fabulous. So pulling all of this together, uh, you know, a few years uh, earlier, after having taught young children uh, Sikh history for a couple of decades, I decided to distill my experiences and learnings as a young Sikh into a podcast and then a book. Uh, I was very conscious of a couple of things uh, that uh, you, Dr. Vadva, have really picked up on. And one of them was that I really wanted to make the history of the faith relatable to, to modern times and particularly to young people. Uh, you know, Gurnanak himself didn't believe in miracles, quote unquote. So I find it very ironic that his legacy swirls with mir miraculous uh, events that are attributed to him. Yet these stories were very important because they were parables. They made important points. So I pulled all of this together into the book. And the whole point was to create something that young people would find accessible, would find relatable. And then the hope was that maybe it would inspire them a little, just, as, just like I had been inspired by individuals and things that I had read several decades earlier. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but you asked a really, really excellent question. My pleasure listening to you, and I don't want to stop you. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yes, that's beautiful. And I remember that part very clearly in your introduction itself. And that was a very good uh, clarifying that gave me a very, very uh, relevant entry point into your book. So yes. Uh, talk to me about another dimension of writing. I think um, the script of the podcast has been converted to the book. I mean, I managed to listen to some episodes before uh, this interaction. It shows that most art, form, most art forms begin with writing. Yeah. Could you talk about the adaptation process and the process of writing before and after? Indeed, indeed. So uh, the book is written in a fairly informal voice, you might have noticed. And uh, the reason for that is deliberate and twofold. Uh, one of the reasons is that I wanted the book to be accessible. I didn't want to use the language of a quote unquote academic or a historian. Uh, by the way, I am neither. Uh, you know, I consider myself to be a storyteller above everything else. And even there, there's a lot of serendipity. Uh, but, you know, a podcast by definition is a fairly informal medium where you don't want to sound pedantic. And that was a conscious choice that I made when I was writing the script of the podcast. And I would say that uh, the script of the podcast translated quite seamlessly into print as well. As an aside, I wasn't planning, <clears throat> excuse me, on publishing this as a book. Mm. What prompted me to do it was the tremendously positive response I got to the podcast, particularly from young people. And uh, many, many listeners would send me messages asking, you know, we really loved hearing the stories. 
wouldn't it be nice if it appeared in book form as well? So that was the genesis of the idea. And I had already published uh, one book. I had another one on the way. So it wasn't a very complicated task to kind of reimagine the script of the podcast uh, as a book. Uh, I did enhance certain sections. Uh, you know, uh, uh, listeners of my podcast will recognize that my episodes started getting longer and longer as I went into the podcast, probably because I was enjoying myself so much. So I did go back and I reinforced some of the earlier chapters with more material. Uh, before, uh, you know, so the print version has uh, more sort of stuff in uh, that was added to the earlier chapters in particular, because when I started the podcast, they were shorter. So I'm sort of giving you maybe a little more detail than you were looking for, but this is how the podcast turned into a book. Yeah, and that's excellent. I would love to know more about this. The beautiful thing is, and whatever I read, I take to my classroom as well. And I think this would give me an opportunity to talk about no matter what you're doing, even if you're looking uh, at becoming influencers or making videos and everything, it all starts with writing. If you know your writing is clear, it becomes translatable in several other ways. And uh, since I brought up translation, that brings me to my you know uh, third curiosity about your book. Uh, it's again related to your craft. Uh, do you think the process of you know the translating the poetry changed the story that you were saying that you were narrating? That, that's a great question. Again, uh, the translation of the poetry is a really important part of the book. Uh, you know, and and the reason for that is uh, remember I came to all of this not being able to read Gurmukhi. Yeah. So my engagement with the Guru Granth Sahib itself was through English translations. And I have to say that even though the available English translations are really useful for people like me at the time who couldn't read them in the original, hmm. translating poetry from one language to another is fraught. And you know, when it's mystical poetry, it becomes an order of magnitude more difficult. Yeah. So what I started to realize once I started reading Gurmukhi uh, was that while a lot of the translations sort of faithfully translated the original word by word, they ended up being really prosaic. I mean, how could they not? You know, when you take a poem and you translate every word in the poem, what you're left with is something that is often bereft of what we would call bhav in Indian uh, aesthetics or the essence. So the essence is lost. Uh, so when I started to write the script for the podcast, one of my sort of imperatives was to translate not to the letter, but to the spirit of the original. Uh, let me hasten to say that all the work that I've translated in this book, and I will talk about it in some detail, uh, even though I've tried to convey the essence, the only way to really engage with it and truly enjoy, with, enjoy it is to read it in the original. I mean, that is absolutely clear in my own mind. Uh, yet, I have attempted to convey a little bit of the essence of the original, at least through my translations, 
which are very focused on preserving the emotions and sort of the emotional essence of uh, what the original tried to say. Now, the problem was compounded because, uh, well, for, you know, uh, just, just uh, as something that your uh, listeners might not be aware of, uh, the Guru Granth Sahib is written in the Gurmukhi script, but it's really written in multiple languages, many of which are defunct now. And the reason for that is the contributors, the gurus themselves, lived in different time periods. They lived in different parts of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, so Guru Nanak Sahib wrote in the language of the place that he grew up in, which was Punjab. Guru Tegh Bahadur Sahib, on the other hand, spent a lot of time in the eastern parts of India, and his writings are in Braj. Uh, yeah. You know, you have the writings of Bhagat Namdev, who was from Maharashtra. You have uh, Shabads in Farsi. So there are many, many languages in the Guru Granth Sahib, uh, you know, that just knowing the script, you know, itself doesn't help you decipher them. You have to do some work. And then when I, when the world of Braj poetry opened up to me, you know, when I started reading Pai Veer Singh in particular, he cited several other poets such as Santok Singh, Kweir Singh, you know, Senapati, all of whom wrote these fabulous books in verse in Braj. So there was this challenge for me. I didn't speak Braj. So mm. translating that was uh, like a jigsaw puzzle. And, yeah. you know, it would be interesting for the audience to know that the two most useful resources that I had at my disposal for translating the Brudge poetry in particular, one of them was this grand encyclopedia of Sikhism written by Pai Karn Singh Nabba that was written in the early 1900s. Oh. And the second resource was a Brudge dictionary that was written by missionaries, I believe, in Ludhiana in, mm. during the British Raj. So it's kind of interesting that you know these resources that are almost a century old were mm. the ones that enabled me to unlock the beauty of this poetry. Uh, but I fear that I'm rambling, uh, you know, to, to, get back, to get back to your question. Uh, yes, the translation did impact my storytelling tremendously. And how could it not? You know, the soaring rhetoric of the Gurbilas literature in particular, the Gurbilas Patshai Chemi about Guru Hargobind, the Gurbilas Patshai Dasmi about Guru Gobind Singh, and then the beautiful Marcier or elegiac uh, poems of Allah Yarkhan Jogi, who wrote so poignantly about the sacrifice of Guru Gobind Singh's older sons and um, essentially the murder of his younger sons. This is all tremendously emotional work. So engaging with that and trying to translate it definitely informed my storytelling and my writing very, very significantly. All right. All right. Um, but, you know, I think I should get back to the point that you made about, uh, you know, you not approaching this as a historian, but as a storyteller. And I think I mentioned that in my review as well. That comment needs to be taken with a bucket of salt because <laughs> the kind of research that you put in, the kind of, you know, uh, uh, scholarship that you have consulted, the kind of sources that you have consulted, I think speak for themselves. So I thought. Uh, 
I would say that's very kind of you. Um, uh, you know, when I say that, I, I really, uh, you know, there's no false modesty in that statement at all. Historians write with a certain rigor, and yeah. uh, you know, I'm I'm not trained to do that. That's not my field. Uh, the other thing is that I I would unabashedly say that this book is very personal. It is slanted by my personal opinion. I will share a little funny story with you. So Please. I have this young protege who is, you know, brilliant. There's no other word to describe him. He's about 25, 26 years old now. So when I first started, uh, you know, creating the podcast, I sent him a few episodes and he listened and he got back to me and he says, well, Uncle G, I really liked your podcast. It makes for great listening, but you know what? It seems to me that you have turned Guru Nanak into a secular humanist as opposed to somebody who was divinely inspired. And I sat back and I scratched my head and I realized that he's exactly right in a certain sense. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, the history of the Sikh faith and the lives of the gurus is a vast ocean. There is so much that one could write about. I have very deliberately chosen to write about those things that inspired me very directly as a young man. So there are certain aspects of Guru Nanak's personality that are very precious to me personally, uh, you know, such as his complete commitment to social justice his unequivocal commitment to equality, his rejection of discrimination in every form, his very live social conscience. These are tremendously, tremendously important to me. Of course, that doesn't in any way diminish from the fact that, you know, he himself said he was divinely inspired and he had a deep personal connection to the divine. So that is also mentioned in the book but some of the other aspects that I talk about definitely get a lot of airplay because they inspired me personally. So I think that's a key difference between my writing and the writing of uh, a quote unquote historian. I think I should make two points there. One is your, you know, uh, protégé's uh, observation uh, needs is very, very valid. Nothing, uh, you know, against that. But I think it's also a process of translation, which was my earlier question to you that, you know, in English and in storytelling, if it becomes like this, it sounds like this, it's a very natural thing. And it should not be seen as, you know, doing uh, or taking something away from the process. The other thing is that we must also recognize that the process of scholarship and academics is also deeply personal that when when people do uh, research there is a lot of uh, you know uh, personal connection that motivates them in fact even the narrative that we pick up and we narrate through history is also you know sort of infected positively negatively by you know our own belief systems and things like that yes fair yes. enough fair enough yes uh let's get to the book itself now right so this is my bias as a reader. Um, I'm interested in conversations about love. And your book moved me a lot because it spoke about faith and devotion, but in ways so deeply touched by love. I liked the moments in which, you know, the guru is transferring uh, the guruship to the next guru, uh, especially Guru Nanak transferring, uh, you know, the guruship to Lehna, right? I think it's on page number 61. So maybe we could have you read uh, that bit. It's a nice story. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. 
After a few days at Kartarpur, Lena made his way back to Kadur and excitedly told his wife Kivi about his new master. <clears throat> he ordered a fine set of new clothes and purchased a bag of salt for the langar. Dressed in his new finery, he returned to Kartarpur. When he arrived, he was told by Gurunanak's wife, who was respectfully addressed as Mata or Mother Salakhani, that the Guru was working in the fields. Lerna offered the bag of salt to the Guru's wife and went to look for Guru Nanak. The Guru had collected three large bundles of grass for his cows and buffaloes. The bundles were heavy and muddy, and the Guru's followers seemed reluctant to carry them. <clears throat> the Guru then asked his sons, Sri Chand and Lakshmi Das, to carry them, who protested as well, saying that they would find a laborer to do the task. Bhai Lerna unhesitatingly picked up the bundles and balanced them on his head, unmindful of the mud dripping on his fine new clothes. Mother Sulakni chided the Guru for letting their guest carry the grass, pointing out that he had many followers whom he could have called upon. The Guru replied that God had put the bundles on the head of the man who was truly capable of carrying them. When Mata Sulakni lamented that Lena's fine clothes had been soiled, the Guru replied that what he saw on Lena's clothes was not mud, but saffron, the mark mm -hmm. of royalty. Yeah. This act of devotion was not Lena's last one by any means. Oh, you want to stop there? Oh, I can read some more. I was just be trying yeah, to be mindful of the time. The main part was of was about the wall. This was okay. like a product to it. Let me read that. Let me read that. It's one of my favorite stories as well. One winter's night during heavy rainfall, a part of the wall of the Guru's house collapsed. The commotion woke up the household, including both of his sons. Several of the Guru's most devout Sikhs also gathered many sleepily rubbing their eyes, shivering under the coarse shawls that they had tossed around their shoulders to ward off the rain and the cold. The Guru decreed that the wall be fixed immediately. There was much hemming and hawing and shuffling of feet. Some wondered privately if the Guru might be going senile. Finally, his sons mustered the courage to speak. It's past midnight, father, and bitterly cold. Please go back to bed. In the morning, we will engage a mason and laborers to take care of this. The guru merely looked at the group and said, Why do I need masons and laborers when I have all of you? Everyone breathed a sigh of relief when Lena stepped up, inwardly laughing at his foolishness. After all, what was the need to repair the wall at once? Lena got to work under the watchful eye of his master as the rest of the six, including Sri Chand and Lakhmi Das, returned to their warm beds. Lena diligently rebuilt a large section of the wall and found the guru looking over his shoulder as he worked. It is crooked, Lena, said the guru. 
Without a moment's hesitation, Lennart tore down the wall and started again. This time, the guru let him build it and examined it critically when it was finished. You built it in the wrong spot, Lena. You're going to have to move the wall. Uncomplaining, Lena threw down the wall and started to build it for a third time. It was dawn by then, and the six began to wake up. Some gathered around Guru Nanak's house watching Lena work. Finally, when the wall was completed, the Guru once again expressed dissatisfaction and commanded Lena to tear it down yet again. Some of the Sikhs began to titter. The Guru's sons mocked Lena, calling him a fool for obeying such unreasonable orders. Lena went back to his work unperturbed. That was quite a treat. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. I adore the story for, uh, I know you had uh, clarified in the book that you have included a lot of miraculous stuff, but you also see them as parables. And uh, this was not miraculous, but you know, it bordered on those, one of those moments in which, you know, you want to believe uh, that something like this could have happened. It translates the impossible, incredulous stuff to, you know, situations in terms of situations that can be so easily you know, relatable. So that was interesting. The other bit, what was your most favorite bit? Before, I mean, I'm, I can go on and on about. Oh, gosh. Know. In the entire book? That's a tough one. Think uh, of one. I think... <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, the lives of the gurus uh, were you know so multifaceted and their experiences were so diverse that it's kind of difficult to really put a finger on one particular thing but i'll talk about one or two things that really really inspired me tremendously personally so uh, you know the, the entire world the sikh world included knows quite a bit about guru nanak sahib knows quite a bit about Guru Gobind Singh. They know a little bit about Guru Arjun. And the rest of the Gurus, even to most Sikhs, are a bit of a mystery. And one of the joys for me in writing this book was delving into the lives and the histories of some of the other Gurus as well. So there are several chapters uh, uh, in the book dedicated uh, to Guru Hargobind, the sixth guru, yeah. who ascended to the throne of Guru Nanak at a young age after his father was uh, brutally tortured and put to death by the Emperor Jahangir. And, you know, Kavi Santok Singh in his opus, the Guru Pratap Suraj Granth, you know, imagines Guru Arjan Sahib's last moments and talks about a command that Guru Arjan issued for his son just before he gave up his, his body, saying that you shall arm yourself, you shall raise an army, and you shall oppose tyranny because now tyranny has exceeded all bounds and we need to take direct action. It was a seminal moment in the Sikh faith now, uh, if, you'll, if you'll humor me for getting on my soapbox for about 30 seconds, a lot of uh, historians, serious historians and scholars, 
have looked at this moment and the subsequent history of the Sikh faith as a rupture in, this, in the fabric of the faith that Guru Nanak created. And what do I mean by that? You know, they tend to focus, uh, they tend to dichotomize uh, you know, Guru Nanak and Guru Gobind Singh in particular. Uh, and this is emphasized by the images that we see in popular art. You know, you see Guru Nanak as a gray beard, you know, with his eyes half closed, his hands raised in benediction. And you see Guru Gobind Singh as a young man with a jet black beard, a falcon on his wrists, a quiver of arrows slung on his shoulder. And the implication is very, very clear that, you know, Guru Nanak was a man of peace and Guru Gobind Singh was a man of valor and a man of war. This distinction doesn't just exist in popular culture. Scholars have called the moment when Guru Hargobind armed himself as a rupture in the fabric of the faith and a, and a bold new direction. It was nothing of the sort. Why do I say that? And that's the reason why this is one of, my fav one of the favorite parts of my story. Guru Hargobind, when he was being invested with the accoutrements of the guruship, you know, the, the book that contained the writings of the gurus, uh, a seli, which was a cord that was wrapped around and so on, the story goes, decreed that all of those items be placed in the treasury and he put on a turban, affixed a plume to it and sent for a sword. And then he strapped on two swords, which became the famous swords of Miri and Piri, spiritual power and temporal power that he wore. This was a very significant moment. It was the seed that sort of, you know, went on to sprout in the form of a standing army that he raised. And then he fought multiple battles against the Mughals. The beauty of this moment for me, and I, I talk about this at length, you know, with a lot of translations from the Gurbilas Pashai Chemi, which talk about the actual battles themselves. This moment was tremendously important to me because I see this not as a rupture, but I see this as nothing but a continuation of Guru Nanak's philosophy. And what do I mean by that? Chapter four, chapter three of the book, uh, you know, talks about what happened, what is happening in Punjab when Guru Nanak returned from Mecca. So Punjab had just been attacked by Babur, who was then a warlord and not the first Mughal emperor of India. And he had laid waste to Punjab. This was before the first battle of Panipat. Guru Nanak came to a town called Sayyidpur and there he saw the havoc that Babur's armies had wreaked upon the town, the slaughter, the large-scale molestation of women, and all the terrible things that accompanied medieval warfare. Nanak was moved. And not only was he moved, he was angry. He was unwilling to accept what Babur had done. And he roared like a lion. And yeah. out of his mouth, came words that were no less potent than the swords of Guru Hargobind and the sword of Guru Gobind Singh, which he bequeathed to the Sikhs when he created the Khalsa. So to me, Guru Nanak's excoriation, his fearless 
challenging of Babur, calling him a tyrant to his face, was nothing other than the two swords that Guru Ghargobin strapped on. So I see this beautiful unity of ideas that flows from Guru Nanak to Guru Gobind Singh through all the gurus. And this episode of Guru Hargobind strapping on the twin swords of Miri and Piri, to me, do nothing but emphasize yet another principle of Guru Nanak's. Because I, as a, as a Sikh, truly believe that every idea in Sikhism, including the Kirpan of Guru Gobind Singh, comes directly from Guru Nanak. There is no difference. And by the way, the traditional Sikh viewpoint emphasizes this. The bards Satta and Balwand, whose writings appear in the Guru Granth Sahib, emphasize this. Kavi Senapati, one of the court poets of Guru Gobind Singh in his writings, emphasizes this. It is this unity of doctrine and philosophy that runs through the teachings of all the gurus, that is what inspires me and that's what that story indicates to me. I remember that opening itself. I mean, you have opened the book with that. So that opening made a very, very um, strong impression. Very, uh, I could not make up my mind. I, I mean, I went back to that particular moment. There was, it was a very troubled time when I was reading that book and that idea of standing up to tyranny uh, made a lot of sense to me so yes and uh, you know and i think it relates to our previous point about uh, scholarship as well i think storytelling gives you that freedom to connect things scholarship might want you to see things in terms of schism in terms of you know breaks so in that sense storytelling can be very very liberating so i get that point about your methods as well I think we can go on and on, but I, we'll need to stop here and vacate the space for other authors and other readers to intermingle and talk about the books that bind them. I um, thank you for letting me share this moment with you. I thank Dr. Mrinalini Naik, Snehal, Purva, Priyanka, Amit, and the OCLF team for this opportunity. I'm very, very grateful. Have a good evening, everyone, and happy reading to all. But before that, over to you, Purva. Indeed, this was a very powerful session, I must say. I'm completely overwhelmed, so, so my takeaway from this session is that faith isn't just a notion that some people hold on to in tough times, but it is an important element to all human lives on Earth. Without faith, we are nothing. So at the outset, I would like to thank Mr. Sarpreet Singh and Ms. Sony Vagba for joining us today. We wish we get to hear you both again and be equally enlightened as we all are today. And for my dear massive audience, I am sure that after witnessing this conversation, you all are taking home an enriched version of yourself just as I will. Thank you for joining us today. Until I see you again. This is Purva Bagale signing off. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
welcome to Rai Song, a vision beyond.